Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been taking about a year-long journey through the Gospel of Mark. But before we finish Mark over the Easter weekend, we're going to be spending eight weeks studying the topic of the church. Last week we set the foundation for our study and we answered the question, what is the church? And we focused on the local church, how it is formed and sustained by the Word of God. And we learned that two men on a golf course talking about Jesus doesn't constitute a church. Neither does a small group, but a biblical church is distinguished from any other gathering of Christians by both the right preaching of God's Word and the right practicing of the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at different aspects of the church. So next week, we'll look at church membership and then discipleship and evangelism and other topics. But this week, we want to pause and look at the important question, who leads the church? Who leads the church? How, how would you answer that question this morning? Is it one person who has total authority over everything? Is it a man, or could it be a woman? And if it's a man, is it a tough guy, you know, a guy who shoots things and fills his weekend watching mixed martial arts on the television and can take a soda can and smash it flat with the palm of his hand? Or is it a board of directors, everyone with equal power, with business experience and how to lead? Or is it everybody? Should everyone be an equal party in church leadership or because of past abuses in leadership maybe you would say that no one should lead the church in his classic novel animal farm george orwell critiques karl marx's russian communist government by sharing a tale of animals who rise up they organize together and they eventually displace the joneses the human owners of the farm no relation to glenn and donnie no reference to their children being animals by no stretch of the imagination. No, these animals begin running the farm for their own benefit. A new ruling class emerges, and it's none other than the pigs. The pigs have taken over the farm. They rule the day, and they start putting up signs everywhere saying, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> See, Karl Marx had argued that the abuse of authority was a pre-communist issue, that he had solved the problem with his communist government, that, that leadership doesn't have to be abused. But Orwell, in his book, showed that the problem crosses over all time, that there's no pure form of leadership because the problem is further within. This is the darkness of the human heart that mars all human relationships. This side of the fall, that there will always be difficulty in leadership because of sin. Well, it seems in recent history we've reflected on this quite a bit as we've seen dictators deposed or replaced by others after their death. Many of us, unfortunately, have seen abuses of leadership in the church in the past. We've witnessed ugly fights and church splits. We've watched leaders abuse power in the church. And so is the most pure form of church one without leaders? Does bad authority mean we get rid of all authority? So who leads the church? Well, today we want to examine biblical church leadership. And I want us to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
There we'll find an answer to the question. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's in the New Testament towards the end, towards the back of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible today, please pick one up. We'd like to give you one as a gift. You can pick one up at our welcome table on your way out. We'd love for everyone to have the Word of God, to be able to study it, to learn and grow throughout the week, and to flip through here with us uh, in the church service. It's also listed in the bulletin and up there if you currently don't have one along with you. And there are three things that we'll look at today, really three questions we'll seek to answer as we move through this passage. The first is simply we'll answer, who leads the church? Second, what do church leaders look like? What are the characteristics of one who leads the church? And then thirdly, what does a church leader do? What's their job description? Who leads the church? What do they look like? What do they do? Well, first, let's answer the question, who leads the church? Well, though there is order for the church on earth, the fundamental answer is that the leader of the church is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus leads the church. As we saw last week, it's, it's his church. He created it. He sustains it. He owns it. He's the head of the church. He was given to him. It's he who saves the church, and it is he who redeems her. Colossians 1.18 says, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, meaning that he reigns and rules over everything as a supreme ruler. And so as a church, we're not a mere human organization. No, we're an organization because our head is divine. We are a divine entity ruled by God. He gives us supernatural life. And so we look different than a mere human entity or a mere human business or a mere human group that gets together. And while the church is to be governed by the members and issues of membership and discipline, as we'll talk about in future weeks, Jesus has placed under shepherds here on earth to lead. And the words elder, overseer, pastor are used to describe this office. These words are often flip-flopped for one another. In Titus 2, you see that the elder and overseer language are used in the same paragraph to talk about the same person. Philippians addresses the overseers and deacons. Luke also uses the term overseer to describe the office and function of the Ephesian leaders. These are three words used interchangeably, pastor, elder, overseer, pointing to the same office of the leaders of the church. Now the term elder is the most common in the New Testament, so we'll use it to refer to this one role, that elders are to lead the church. But it appears that it's not to be elder in the singular, but plural elders are to lead the church. We see several places that this looks to be the case. Written of the church at Ephesus, Luke says in Acts 20, and from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. In James 5, when a member is sick, it's the elders, plural, of the church that are called to pray over the sick person. And during one of Paul's missionary journeys in Luke 14, it says when they appoint, appointed elders for them in every church. So it appears that it is to be a plurality of elders in the church. It seems biblical, but it's also a matter of prudence to have multiple elders. It helps so we don't build the church upon one person's personality. 
It spreads out the work. It builds kind of a community of ideas and abilities. It also provides accountability, and it's a support to the senior pastor and other staff if the church has one. In fact, I love these men that I get to serve with on our elder team. In fact, there would be no church if it weren't for them. I still remember the day when Max Stiles came up to me about two and a half years ago and said, hey, brother, I want to do this together with you. Let's do this. Let's start Redeemer together as a team. That was one of the greatest days in the history of our church because it meant that we would be there to care for one another, that we'd be there to support one another. And then later, Brian Parks and other elders came on board. We were able to shepherd the church together to encourage one another in this task, to spread the load of the work. God has used these men personally to care for me through my surgeries. Many of you know my arm disorders, my nerve issues in my arms. These men have cared for me, have loved me. These men have cared for me and my family through the church planting ups and downs. Like Moses, they've quite literally held up my arms for battle. Having a plurality of elders has been one of the greatest things in my ministry and one of the greatest things in this church. Even just last night after being sick the last few days, still fighting it today. My whole family's been sick. Our kids have been sick, and Judson just started teething at the same time. So perfect timing for all those things to come together. But even just last night when I didn't know if I could go this morning, uh, Max Stiles texted me at 10 p.m. and said, Brother, I'm willing to go right on the spot if you can do it. See, I love these guys because they're there for me. They're there for one another. Their support is tremendous. And they're lay elders. Many of them are lay elders. means that they're volunteers, so when we use the lay word, it means a layman. It means an elder who's not paid by the church. And so if you didn't know this, David Lawrence, Brian Parks, Max Stiles, they've never made a Durham for their work here at the church. And there is, is an unpaid ministry. It's on top of their full-time jobs outside of the church. And they do it because of their love of Christ and their love uh, for you, for Redeemer. Well, now just to clarify, too, that the official uh, title of senior pastor isn't something that we see specifically uh, in the scriptures. It's not a separate category. I'm not any greater than the other elders. I'm fundamentally one of uh, the elders, one of the team. Though functionally, it seems wise to have one person who's on point. Even without the title, there's one person that has to make a, a final decision at times. There's one person who does the bulk of the preaching. Uh, there's one person... Uh, who will become the de facto senior pastor even without the title. So that's all that that title points to. But it certainly doesn't mean that I'm the only elder of the church. The only way that could work, the only way me or any one of us could be the only elder, is if you have a guy who is never wrong and a guy who never sins. And I'm sure my wife, Gloria, would stand up and attest that I'm not that guy. I'm certainly wrong quite a bit, and I'm certainly full of sin. Now, this is because we're all wicked, right? We're all sinful. This is because none of us could hold that charge fully. If I try, I would pop. It's like a 40-watt man taking a 70-watt charge through him. He'll explode. And so a plurality of elders is necessary to lead and guide the church. But what should each of these leaders look like? What are the characteristics, then, of this plurality of elders? What do these look like? Well, that's the second point. What do these leaders look like? Well, if I were to pass out a note card to you this morning and you were to have a couple minutes just to write down 15 or so characteristics of a church elder, of a leader, what things would you write down? 
What things would be important to you that you would want to see in one of us, in your pastor, in an elder? Well, if you haven't, turn with me to 1 Timothy 3 because the Apostle Paul gives us a list. He gives us this biblical list of what we ought to look for when identifying and electing and serving under these elders. We see starting in verse 2, he has this list. Several things are listed. The first thing is kind of an umbrella category for all the rest. It's that an elder is to be above reproach. This means one who is blameless. It's the kind of person you'd be shocked to hear anything negative about. It's not that he's perfect or else we'd all be disqualified, but it means that he has a reputation for being a godly man. He's above reproach. Well, he's also the husband of but one wife, or literally a one-woman man. This coupled with passages like 1 Timothy 2, 11-15, which says women are not to teach over men, and along with the pattern of the New Testament and in the order of creation in Genesis, we see that an elder is to be a man. Elders to be a man. Now, this doesn't mean that women aren't capable of leading In fact, based on talent, many women are more capable or eager leaders than men. A woman's ability or willingness to lead is not the point here. Because as we can see back in Genesis, there's a creative order. Man was created first. Woman was created out of man to be a helper. Men are meant to lead. In Romans 5, we see that after Eve had sinned and taken the fruit, it's Adam who's called out for sinning. It's Adam who's called out because he had abdicated his leadership. He had failed to lead. He had failed to say, Eve, this fruit is bad. God said to stay away from it, to not eat it. But instead, he passively abdicated that rule. Eve ate, and then he took some of the fruit, and he ate. When the creative order gets reversed, the results are disastrous. And so an elder, according to Scripture, is to be a man. But what does it mean to be the husband of but one wife? Is this meant to exclude unmarried men from office or prohibit remarriage either after the death of a spouse or after divorce? I think these are unlikely. Paul speaks highly of those single in ministry and it doesn't look like he was married. Neither was Jesus. It also doesn't seem to forbid a man to be remarried if his wife dies. I mean, Paul in Romans 7 insists there's nothing dishonorable in marrying a Christian spouse after years passes away and dies. Now, divorce is a bit more controversial, but again, I think the issue here is monogamy and faithfulness. Where divorce would easily disqualify someone is bound up in that category of blamelessness. Is their credibility gone? Is their believability gone? What were the details of the divorce? Does it discredit him regarding faithfulness to your spouse? Now, that's the issue. Now, it seems what Paul's getting at here is this issue of polygamy or adultery. And we know that polygamy was, was quite common in certain places in biblical times. We know that King Herod had ten wives, many at the same time. Now Paul is saying here that husbands are to be faithful to their wives as Christ is faithful to the church. Paul says elders must be committed to their wife. I don't think any woman in the history of the world has ever said, yes, My husband is loving, he's considerate, he's hospitable, he's gentle, he's kind, but I know he's faking it. I know he's faking those qualities. It's never been the case because what you are at home is is what you are. 
You may be able to fake it for an hour at church or in your cubicle at work. But husband, are you committed to your wife? Men, how are you doing in this area? How's your marriage going? Adrian, how's your marriage going these last three weeks? Good? (laughs) See, the standards for an elder of the church are qualities of godliness that every man ought to pursue. Does your life reflect these qualities? How do you treat your wife when no one sees you but God? Is she the recipient of all your affection? Or are there other pursuits you enjoy more than friendship with your wife? Do you enjoy and pursue your job more than your wife? Or your hobbies more than your wife? Do you love your computer more than your wife? Do you love your children more than your wife? Do you love anything more than this bride that God has given you to love as Christ has loved the church? Friend, pursue your wife If you don't hear anything else in these categories, friend, hear this. Pursue your wife. Husband, pursue her. Talk to her. I know how tough this is for some of us. You know, we have a long day at work. We have a long commute. We fight traffic and then we get home and we're tired. The last thing we want to do is talk about our day, talk about our feelings. It's hard. It's difficult. But friend, even if it takes hours, talk to her. Here's a homework assignment. Even if it's hard for you to talk, just sit next to your wife this week. Sit next to your wife and just wait until you talk to her. Even if it takes hours, just sit there and just open up your heart. Talk to this friend that God has given you. Not only pursue her emotionally, but pursue her physically. Pursue her intimately. God has given you you a spouse not to live as a roommate, but to live as one flesh, husband and wife. Flee from wicked thoughts. Cut off pornography. Run from other women. Be a one-woman man. Look to Jesus as your example in his faithfulness to the church. Look to Jesus as your Savior and draw strength from him. And men, if you don't live near your wife geographically, maybe you're separated from your spouse right now. Maybe you've left them at home to find work or whatever it may be. Friend, don't seek companionship from another woman. It's not okay to do that while you're in Dubai. Dubai is not a parenthesis in your life of holy living. No, run from other women. Flee to godly fellowship with other men. Flee to the cross. Call your wife often. Pursue her the best you can from afar. Call her. Talk to your wife. Talk to your kids. Visit them often. Seek to Bring the family together as soon as possible. Be a one-woman man. Be the husband of but one wife. But what else do we see? We could talk about that all day if we want. Another characteristic of an elder is he must be temperate and self-controlled. It's the opposite of the prodigal son who gave himself over to every impulse. He's sober in his actions. He's also respectable. And if you had to come up here this morning and share your testimony, could you have your eyes go back and forth throughout the congregation, not nervous at who you see looking at you when you attest to your Christian faith? Or would you be afraid that maybe someone here has seen another side of you and you'd be a bit terrified, a bit nervous? One elder is also hospitable. 
An elder opens up his life, his home, his wallet to those hurting. An elder is also able to teach. Now this is one of the two characteristics that cause an elder to stand out. This is different from preaching. It doesn't mean every elder uh, is able or gifted to come up and preach God's word, being a herald of God's word. No, it means that an elder must be able to teach, to be able to handle God's word, to have a grasp of what the Bible says, to be able to exhort in sound doctrine, to be able to refute false doctrine, to be able to disciple, meet with folks, to refute those who contradict it. He also must not be given to drunkenness. He's free from addiction. He's a slave to Christ, not a slave to anything or anyone else. And he's not violent, but gentle. He's got a gentle touch. An elder or a real man is kind. He's not necessarily a man whose neck is bigger than his head, a man who's buff and macho and strong. No, a real man is one who's tender, who's sweet, who treats people with love and care. I mean, think about it. What if you saw me at Murdoch City Center on a Thursday night just yelling and screaming at my wife, Gloria, just nose to nose with her, having it out with her? I mean, could you listen to me preach on Friday morning? What if you went to a restaurant and you saw me humiliating the waitress there, just humiliating her, letting her know how angry I am because she messed up our order and it took a few minutes extra to get to me? Or what if you were taking a little drive by the Redeemer Villa and you saw me standing out there with a little plant trimmer and I was just banging it against the wall over and over again? And what would you think? Well, maybe you'd praise God and say, wow, Dave's arms are healed. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. (laughs) That'd be great. I hope I can slam that plant trimmer over and over and over again against the wall. But after that, you'd probably think, well, Dave's going a bit crazy. What's happened to our pastor? Has he lost his mind? Has he gone wild? I mean, have you ever thought about how ridiculous it looks when you lose your temper to everyone else? It looks crazy. It looks nuts. Now, men, how are you doing in this area? How are you doing with anger? Do you take your anger and frustrations out on your wife or on your colleagues at work or kids? Are you violent? Do you raise your voice? See, Paul is saying that a real man is gentle. He's a tender man. He's not domineering. One elder is also not quarrelsome. He doesn't enjoy division and fighting. And he's also not a lover of money. You might say, Dave, well, I'm so free of money, I'm broke. (laughs) It's no problem for me, Pastor. I got nothing. Well, it's not what Paul is getting at here. It's not whether you're wealthy. It's not whether you're poor. It's whether you're preoccupied with the building up of an earthly portfolio or a bank account rather than the building up of the kingdom of heaven. See, whether you have one durham in your bank account or whether you have a million durhams saved, either way, we can be coveting money. We can be a lover of money. We can be pursuing earthly riches instead of heavenly riches, which we will enjoy forever. But Paul also says that an elder manages his family well. Manages his family. The same word for manage here is the word that describes the task of leading in the church that we see in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. An elder should be leading in his home. It's the idea that if he can't manage his household, how could he take care of God's church? It's the idea of the parable of the talents. 
you can't do it in your home with a few people, how will you do it in the larger arena of God's people, the bride of Christ? Now, this doesn't mean that an elder's kids need to be believers. Grace doesn't run in the genes. You, can't shape, you can shape your kids' lives, but you can't convert them. They're not automatically Christians because you are. If this is a new idea for you as a parent, that your children aren't saved just because you are, please consider this a wake-up call to evangelize your kids, to continue to share the gospel with them as they grow up, to point them and their lives to Jesus. Pray that God would save them by his grace, that God would draw them into a saving relationship. And to say also that an elder's family, that an elder manages his family well, it doesn't mean that their kids never sin. No, our kids sin. They're sinners just like other kids, just like you and just like me. I think this has more to do with being an example of godly living, having a wife who is supportive of the ministry and having kids who are living under control, not profoundly rebellious or disobedient. The last thing we want is an elder who looks a certain way in public and then in private acts a totally different way. His family is just a mess. Well, moving on, verse 6 says, He must not be a recent convert. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. What he's saying here is that rapid placement spells disaster. Pride puffs up, and churches where... The churches that are planted among unreached people groups where there are hardly any believers and a church rises up, perhaps you identify elders rather quickly because someone has to lead. But in a more established church, in a bigger church with more capable leaders, you're, you're much more careful. You take it slow when you appoint men to lead. One of the reasons you do that is because it's not just about their leadership capabilities, but it's about their character. We want to be careful not appointing someone too soon. And so we have a couple men in our church now who are leading great gospel movements, who are proclaiming the gospel to others, who are discipling folks, who are doing great things, but they're still relatively new believers. And so we're patient. We're waiting for them to continue to mature in Christ. Well, Paul says he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into a devil's trap. So... We want men who are highly reputed by non-Christians, by those outside of our church, men who are respected in the workplace, who are respected in their neighborhood. We want men who are above reproach, as verse 2 had stated. And beyond these biblical characteristics, there are also some practical ones that must fall in place as we bring on elders. Uh, In our Constitution, it says that we elect and then vote elders who are 100% in agreement with our doctrinal statement. So that means things like total depravity. It means that as an elder we believe that as a human being we are 100% wicked and evil apart from Jesus. So we believe in such things as believers' baptism and other issues that you can see in our statement of faith. We also want men who share the same philosophy of ministry. We want men who are going to work well with our team, men who genuinely like each other. We want men who have time, Some elder qualified men in our church are just busy with with work or in their family status or in their particular ministry outside of the church. So we need to be wise and prudent. And when it comes to identifying men, finally, we want men who are already eldering. 
We don't want men to start doing this work when we identify them and bring them up front. We want men who are shepherding the people of God because they love to do it, because it's their passion to teach, it's their passion to lead. You notice as we just quickly went through those lists of characteristics that Paul mentions, that he doesn't say you need an IQ of 160 to be able to teach, be able to lead and be an elder. You don't need to be super smart. You don't need to be able to bench press 100 kilograms. You don't need to run as fast as Brian Parks or be as good-looking smart or dress as cool as Lenny Mathiah. None of those things are listed here. You don't have to be brilliant or an expert in witness, in, in, in business, sorry. You don't have to preach like John Piper or Tim Keller. Now, as Don Carson has observed, this list is quite remarkable because it's unremarkable. In fact, apart from teaching, there are characteristics that are mandated of all believers somewhere in Scripture. The list is primarily about character. So as I mentioned a second ago, we go slow because identifying men based on character takes time, takes opportunities for these men to be tested, takes opportunities for current elders to get to know them, for the membership to get to know them, to watch them, to observe their lives. And so it was with great joy that back in December, as elders, we were able to bring forward three new elder candidates for our members to consider. But I wanted to bring them now up to the front, just so all of us could see who they are. So men, Frank Sampson, Tom Samuel, Eric Kerher, if you guys can just stand up and come up front uh, here, um, right in front of me is fine. I want uh, the body here today to see who you are, to see who we're prayerfully considering as members of the church We feel like these three men embody the very characteristics that I've talked about this morning. We feel like these three men aren't perfect. I think they'd all say that they're far from perfect. Their wives would admit they're far from perfect. But these men are teachable men. They are humble men who love Jesus. They are men who are growing. They are men who are serving in the church. They are men who are already eldering to some extent by loving and caring for folks in this church. And if you're a member of this church, let this serve as a reminder as you consider these men that on February 24th, we're going to take a vote uh, on whether to bring these men into the office of elder. So if you have any issues or concerns that you'd like to talk to me or any of the other elders about it, please do it here in this next month. What we don't want is it to be a surprise in the members' meeting. We want to discuss it. We want to follow up on it before the meeting so we can make any necessary adjustments before we meet on that date. But please do prayerfully consider these men, and Eric and Tom and Frank. I just want to tell you guys that I love you. I'm proud of you. so thankful for you and your service in the church. It's an honor and a privilege to serve uh, with you guys here. You guys uh, can be seated. Thanks for coming up and being recognized. Well, we've seen this morning that the church is to be led by elders, that it is to be led by a plurality of elders. We've looked at the characteristics of elders, but now let's turn to the third point, the question of what do elders do? Or what are the duties of an elder? That's the third point. I'm going to move quickly here because we really don't see much in this passage on this particular question. The bulk of the passage, if not just about all of it, talks about the characteristics of an elder. But I do want to mention briefly two things that an elder is to do. I mean, basically, an an elder is one shepherd among a group of shepherds, and he does two things. He leads and he feeds. He leads the sheep and he feeds 
the sheep. That's fundamentally what an elder does. First, he leads. You can imagine, even as we sang uh, the song on Psalm 21 and heard Eric read that passage this morning, you could imagine a group of shepherds standing there on the Judean countryside leading their flocks of sheep. And the shepherds lead the sheep there to a pasture where they can munch on grass in a carefree fashion. During which the shepherds aren't standing there just complacent. They're looking out. They're looking out for wolves who might attack. They're looking, at, <clears throat> looking out for thieves who may try to rob them of their flock. Now the job of a shepherd never ends. He leads his sheep to nourishment. He leads their sheep in a provisional way to help them, to give them good health, to give them good food. Now we see here the picture of Christ as the great shepherd. Now, elders are charged with this opportunity and this privilege of leading the sheep, to leading them towards the great commission of evangelism and discipleship, leading them towards the gospel and the way we have to live as a church. So the elder leads, but the elder also feeds. We see this quite clearly in our passage this morning. The leader, the elder, is to feed the congregation with God's word. That's why he has to be able to teach An elder teaches God's word. He makes sure that the doctrine of the church is sound. He makes sure that the doctrine is protected from heresy, from false teaching. He makes sure the books at the bookstall are grounded in truth, that the songs we sing are grounded on the Bible, that the classes we teach are led in truth according to God's word, that our ministries are built upon the gospel. The elder is to guard the doctrine of the church. He is to teach the church in truth. And in life, according to God's word, not according to any man-made precepts. Now, in many ways, I'd be happy if every ministry of the church failed except for the teaching of God's word and the gospel. So Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that leads to salvation. Matthew 4.4 4 says, The man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So friends, as you come to Redeemer, please pray for this. Pray as the elders handle God's word. Pray that we would be faithful to the truth. Pray that we would not neglect this. Pray that we would not do it in error. But we would do it with with correctness, with passion, with clarity. You know, in my pastoral ministry, the thing that terrifies me the most is actually a verse in the book of Hebrews. Where the author says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, he says this, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will give account. So what it's saying here is that the elders of the church, these leaders in the church, will have to take account before God for how they led. And friend, as a pastor, I'm terrified because I know that one day I will stand before God and I will have to take account for how I've led, for how I've served this church. It's a terrifying thought. Now, friend, pray for me. Pray for us as elders. Pray for these new prospective elders, that we would live holy and pure lives, that none of us would be disqualified, that all of us would teach God's word faithfully. Friend, pray for us, that we would lead this church in a direction that would magnify Jesus in the UAE. So we could easily, with our sin, We could steer this thing in the wrong direction. 
Now, friend, we need you apart from God. We are hopeless. We are helpless. Pray for us. Pray that we would lead and feed in a manner that brings glory to Jesus' name. So an elder leads and he feeds like a shepherd. Well, what about deacons? Deacons, who are they? Are they a second body of decision makers? No, deacons are given as a gift to the church to care for the physical needs of the body. In Acts chapter 6, we see that the apostles characterized the service as waiting on tables, or literally deaconing tables. So how do the elders and deacons work together? Well, an analogy we could use would be to say, well, the elders set the direction, and they say, perhaps, let's drive this car to Abu Dhabi. Well, it's not up to the deacons then to say, no, let's go to Sharjah instead. But they could come back to the elders and say, well, going to Abu Dhabi is fine, but we don't have enough petrol to get there. There's a few things we need to put into place before we go on this trip. As we see in the example of Acts 6 with the feeding of the widows, the deacons are not charged with setting the direction of the church of where to go, but they're put in the place to help the church get there. They're servants. Now, we don't have time to go through each requirement listed here, but they are virtually the same as elders, a few little nuances, except for two main differences. The first is that a deacon doesn't have to be able to teach. They may be able to, they may be great teachers, but it's not essential. <clears throat> the second difference is that a deacon can be a woman. There's some debate on this, but we agree with folks in the Reformation like John Calvin, later Charles Hodge, John Piper, Tim Keller, Don Carson, and a host of others who hold to the woman's ability to hold to the office of deacon or a deaconess. <clears throat> this is for several reasons. One, we see that Phoebe holds that very title uh, diaconon in Romans 16.1. We see in Acts 9 that Tabitha is noted for her diaconal work among the poor and among the widows. And in fact, the most compelling case for female deacons or deaconesses is actually this very passage itself. We see that Paul gives Timothy screening criteria for elders in verses 1 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 13, he gives the screening criteria for deacons. But you notice right in the middle there in verse 11, Paul writes that the wives likewise must be worthy of respect, not speaking evil of others, self-controlled and faithful in all things. Then you see after that statement, Paul goes back to describing male deacons. I think Tim Keller is helpful when he says that by far the most likely conclusion is that the deacons' wives were being screened with selection criteria because they were going to be appointed to diaconal work in the congregation alongside their husbands. The difference being the elders' wives were not sharing in the husbands' work of discipline and oversight. It also seems to be a good explanation of why we see no mention of wives or no mention of women in the elders' description. But quite oddly, at first look, we see a description for the deacon's wives, or what appears to be a deacon's wife in these later verses. So basically, on the fundamental level, deacons are men and deacons are women who are servants. In a sense, this is also what the church staff are. They are paid deacons. They are those who work full-time in service for the church uh, in a service capacity, putting in hours that a volunteer deacon couldn't do. Well, we've seen that elders lead the church. We've seen the characteristics and duties of an, elders, of an elder. We've seen the role of deacons. 
Well, finally, what should all of this mean for us today? In closing, what does this mean to us? Well, I think a key is back in verse 1. Look back there again. We kind of skipped over that verse. Paul writes, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. I don't know if you thought it was prideful to want to be an elder or to aspire to it. Paul says it's an honorable thing to want to be an elder. It's a good thing. Men, you should desire this. Men, you should man up. You should work towards qualifying to be one. That doesn't mean that everyone will be an elder. We can't have 300 male elders and 300 men in the church. But our goal should be to aspire to these characteristics. You might say, Dave, well, I'm I'm far from modeling these things. I'm worldly. I have no spiritual palate for the things of God. I don't do any of these things. Well, friend, your problem is that you're a human being. You're born of Adam. The problem is you're a sinner. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the first step is not to try harder to achieve these characteristics. Your first step is to jump races and be born of the last Adam, the one who died for you, the one who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. You have to join him and be cleansed and be washed. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who jumps races. It's someone who is born again of Jesus Christ. See, when you trust them as Savior, you are placed in him, and there's this overflow in your life. Your affections change. The way you treat your family changes. The way you're hospitable changes. The way you're gentle changes. Men, without Christ, you are dead. Friend, don't try harder. Lean on the one who's already tried hard enough for us. Jesus, who satisfied every requirement of the law. Jesus, who modeled these characteristics perfectly. Men, you need Jesus. Men, you need the Savior of the world. When ladies, how about you? If you were to die today and stand before Christ, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If your answer starts with, well, I did this, or I did that, or I haven't done this, friend, please know that those things don't make you a Christian. If so, then Christ's death was a senseless act. You can't earn heaven. He died that your sin could be punished, and he rose from the dead that you could be given eternal life as a free gift. So being a Christian is. It's being in relationship with God. So whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're from India or from Kenya, the access road of a Christian always empties out at the cross. We all say, Lord God, I have sinned. I repent of it, and I trust in you to wash away all my sin and save me. If you've never done that, there's no better time than to do it today, to come to Jesus, to turn from your sin and trust in him. Well, fellow men, our goal should always be to follow Jesus and to attempt to emulate him in these characteristics. But you can't do it without Jesus. Fellow Christian, depend on the Spirit to transform your heart. Depend on him to transform your marriage and your character. Pray that you would embody these characteristics. Real men don't 
show off their strength physically. Real men say, I need help. I need the strength of Christ. Men, this week, take this passage. Take this along with you. Print it out on your, <clears throat> print it out on your printer. Take it with you around this week and study these characteristics and begin to pray that God would make you look like this man that is described here. Maybe take one or two of them especially and concentrate on that this week and say, God, I need your help. Make me hospitable. Make me gentle. Make me a husband of but one wife, a one woman man who cherishes my bride. Begin to pray. Begin to look down that list. Take that as your anthem this next few months. Emulate it. Aspire to look like an elder. Aspire to be an elder. And ladies, pray for the men of our church. I encourage you to do the same thing this week, to take this passage. Pray for the male leaders of this church. If you're married, pray for your husband. Pray that your husband would emulate these characteristics. Pray that he'd lead you in a loving way. Pray that he'd lead you with tenderness. Pray for him. Go through these categories and ask that God would change him. If you're not married, pray that God would bring you a spouse one day who would emulate these things. Pray for me. Pray for the elders because authority is not the problem. God has established earthly authority in the world for good. Leadership in the church is a God-ordained thing. We don't get rid of it. We don't all lead. It's not that none of us lead. No, we exercise authority in a proper way, displaying God's image to the world. So let us go before God now in prayer, praying that the gospel would not be brought to disrepute by the leaders of this church, but that we would magnify Christ in the UAE. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Christ is the head of the church, the one who gave his very life for us. Father, we pray that our church would magnify him, that it would reveal the glory of Christ to the world. Father, that the elders of this church would follow the rule, the life, and name of Jesus Christ, that we would model him. Father, that we would characterize the man described in 1 Timothy 3. Father, we pray that we would be free from impurity and dishonor. Father, give the elders of this church wisdom on how to lead. Father, use this church to further your kingdom here. Father, we pray that no leader would ever be disqualified in this church. Father, that no leader would fall into unrepentant sin. Father, that the leaders would emulate Jesus. Father, that discipleship and training would happen that we as a church would spread forth throughout this country, proclaiming the good news for all to hear. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.